This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Hannah? Yeah? Today, we start with a dance party. Picture a big hall with like 300 kids, everybody crowded in and sweaty, getting funky. The one very unusual thing about this dance party, though, it's in an orphanage in Syria. Yeah, it was awesome. I still remember everybody just dancing. <laughs> this is Chris Sedek. He was one of the kids at the party, which happened back in 2007. Chris was 10 at the time, and he says he'd never seen people move this way. He'd never heard this kind of music. And he was dumbfounded. He says he started rushing around trying to understand who was the source of this magical music. I was asking people what's happening and like, what's that and what's that? And then the source of all of this awesomeness became clear. Home. There's a DJ. He couldn't take his eyes off of her. Yeah, she had like a bunch of CDs and, you know, big headphones. And I'm like, what's happening right there? Chris was captivated. And was it like the kind of thing where you saw her and all of a sudden you were like, that will be me? Yeah, like I want to be the one who's doing that. Now, lots of 10-year-old boys see a person doing a cool thing and think, I want to be that. But for Chris, this was way more. Chris was shy, a wallflower. He was a kid living in a Syrian orphanage. He had no parents, very limited access to the outside world. But in that moment, he suddenly saw a future, a person that he wanted to be. Boom. I want to be a DJ. For the next decade, no matter how awful the situation Chris found himself in, this future version of himself was like a beacon. This is like pretty much why I'm alive. When he was in his early teens, Chris spent a year and a half homeless in Damascus and then in Beirut. Just running around, trying to find a job, trying to find something to eat, just trying to survive. It was horrible. Two of my friends died and... Uh, Anxiety and depression start kicking me really hard. But always in these dark moments, this image of the DJ that he would one day become would appear in his mind, telling him to keep going. Just keep pushing forward. This image of yourself, how many times a day would you bring that up in your head? Every time I listen to music. <laughs> Hundreds of times a day? Yeah. Eventually, Chris found a shelter to live in. He got a job scrubbing plates and started to assemble elements so that he could make this potential self into an actual self. He got headphones, started watching YouTube videos. Watching, watching, watching. Began teaching himself to make electronic music. Invented a stage name. Lodestio. And then one day when he was 19... 
this faith that he had in his future self was put to a real test. You see, Chris was granted a visa to go to Canada, a place where he could pursue this dream. So he packed his bags, headed to the airport. But in these final moments, right before he got on the plane, he found himself hesitating. Chris was leaving everything that he knew for an idea. He had this concept in his head of who he might one day be. But that was all it was, a concept, a beautiful but at this point fictional idea that he'd conjured that might never become reality. Was it worth it? The last five minutes when I was waiting for the airplane, I said, man, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I leaving? But then he says he heard that voice in his head again, his future self. You were born for this. That's what he says to me all the time. How, how the hell are you going to stop right now? How the hell are you not going to become me? Six. So DJ Lodestio walked down the jetway. Three, two, This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. Invisibilia is a show about all the invisible forces that shape human behavior, our thoughts, beliefs, feelings. And today, we're talking about the concept of our future selves. Chris's future self was remarkably powerful. It launched him from the Middle East all the way to Canada. But most of us have one. An idea about ourselves we get from our family or our neighborhood or our culture. Or maybe a random event comes along and gives us a whole new idea of who we might be. Either way... That future self hovers in our mind, guiding our path, what steps we take and don't take. Hannah, when you were growing up, who was your future self? Was she like the hard-nosed, high-class reporter that you are today? Honest truth. Honest truth. It's just someone who didn't live in Queens. <laughs> that was your future self. I didn't get much further than that. I Shoot was like, not. Forgive me, Queens. Coming up, we have a story that begs the question, can our faith in our future selves go too far? Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called Protein Degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. These days, I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. You're listening to Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. And now we have a story from Hannah, which is about a group of teenagers who were part of an experiment to reach their future selves that went really, really wrong. It should be noted, this episode does contain some disturbing content and might not be appropriate for some listeners. 
Hannah tells the story. Five. And the deeper you go, the better you feel. Four. The better you feel, the deeper you will go. Three, two, and one. Our story takes place in Northport, a small city in Florida that you've probably never heard of. And it centers on a high school. The kids at this high school were like kids at most American high schools. When they grow up, they want to be somebody. In 10 years, I will plan on being... A doctor, lawyer, whatever has good money. Hopefully in college. 10 years? Why is it going to take 10 years? I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm not going to sell drugs, but I'm going to... I want to be like a psychiatrist, you know, wear a pantsuit. (laughs) But the kids in Northport, they weren't living in a community that would set you up for a pantsuit kind of job. Northport's a working-class town. One of those Florida towns that just grew up out of the swampland in the 90s. And it was still kind of one step away from being a place that people would say they were proud to live in. Which brings us to the high school. A brand new building that opened its doors in 2000. As always, Northport works, Northport wins, and let's get to work. Well, when I first saw it, it looked like a prison. (laughs) Paige Davidson. It's gray. You're like, what is that? She says when she first saw the building, it didn't look like the kind of place that was going to breed the future leaders of America. No. And she wasn't the only one who thought that. For some reason, Northport has had a bad rap. Sherry Thompson Denon is a teacher who used to work in Venice, a nearby fancy beach town. When she told her colleagues at Venice that she was thinking about leaving for Northport High, they said, oh, we'll give you a flak jacket for a gift. And I'm like, why? Because those kids are terrible. Almost a quarter of Northport kids drop out of high school. Fights break out in the courtyard all the time. These kids may have grand ideas about who they want to become, but they aren't exactly doing the things you need to do to get there. Here's Paige and Sherry again. I would either come to school late, or I'm not even going to lie. I mean, I, I would smoke, and then I would come to school, and I wouldn't even care about what was going on. I would get upset sometimes with my students because a negative self-talk about Northport and about our school oh, our school sucks and we suck and everything is terrible here. So big dreams, fuzzy about how to get there, which is precisely why it appealed to Principal George Kenney. Can you describe Dr. Kenney? All white hair, white beard, glasses. He's doctoral. He is doctoral. Yeah, it would be like, Dr. K, yo, Dr. K, what's up? (laughs) I don't know if he actually wore a suit as a fact, but in my head, every time I saw him, I saw him with a suit. Hello. Hi. This is George Kenny, who became the first principal of Northport High. Kenny had been working at Pineview School for the Gifted in a wealthier part of the county. And when he was considering taking the job at Northport, he ran into a colleague who was like, Who the f- would want to work with those people? And that's when I decided that that's the place that I wanted to go. See, Kenny came from a working-class family himself. He was the first in his family to go to college. Well, I've always kind of rooted for the underdog and the people that can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. One of my strengths was to be able to see the potential in people and to try to bring that out. When Kenny looked around Northport High, he didn't see a bunch of hot-headed losers destined for hourly labor and minimum wage. He saw what they could be, their better future selves. 
All they needed were new ideas in their head about what those selves could look like. And once Kenny accepted the job at Northport High, he bent his whole life around that mission. Those big dreams they all had, he would give them the tools to make those dreams real. And he did. Here's Sherry Thompson-Denon again. I've never had a principal before or since that bought into this community like he did. Kenny started doing things to introduce them to worlds they weren't familiar with, futures they hadn't even imagined yet. He created an art center. He started dozens of after-school clubs. He introduced AP and college-level courses. He held job fairs at the school, and it was good. But these days, the odds are stacked against kids like this more than ever. So Kenny felt like he needed to find something on another level. And then one day in 2009, Kenny discovered something pretty weird. Something probably no principal had ever even considered before. Why? And the deeper you go, the better you feel. This is Hans-Rudi Wipf, a teacher at the Omnihypnosis Training Center. Four. The better you feel, the deeper you will go. Every year, Hans-Rudi and the famous hypnotist Jerry Kine rent a conference room at a Hampton Inn in Deland, Florida, for a week. For about $3,000, they teach their students about hypnosis, the basic scripts, methods, and laws in every state about when and how it can be practiced. Their philosophy is that a better version of ourselves, the version we've always dreamed of, is locked up inside us. Three. And we can use our wonderful, powerful minds, as Kine likes to say, to achieve everything we want. Two. But there's no reason to wait for the someday self, when we can reach it very easily today with hypnosis. One. In the Kine School, hypnosis is not just a tool. It's a miracle drug. It's the secret. You're going to reach the stars. You're going to achieve everything you want. Because you can easily do those things with a wonderful ability to be anything or do anything that you have within you. In 2009, one of the people who sat in the audience as Jerry Kine did his demonstration was Principal George Kenny. A few years before, Kenny had seen a hypnotist perform at a gathering for kids. And this guy, he'd gotten the kids to suspend their inhibitions in some pretty interesting ways. Like he got a shy kid to dance on stage and a prankster to become an instant math whiz. It was like this guy could get these kids to do things they didn't even know they were capable of. And when Kenny was watching the demonstration, a word popped into his head. Potential. This could be the way for Kenny to help the kids of Northport High quickly reach their future selves. A shortcut. Five. Be anything. Four. Do anything. Five. Four. Three. Two. A doctor. Anything. Millionaire. Anything. Psychiatrist. Anything. One. Kenny believed he had found a key, but he had to test it. So he found his first subject, a Northport High student named Mike, who wanted to be a Marine. He saw the Marines as his ticket out of town and, and a future for himself. But at the time, the Marines were an unreachable dream for Mike. Mike was working after-school jobs to help with the rent. His home life was really unstable. Their electricity had been shut off. They ran an extension cord from the neighbor's house to run the refrigerator. And because of all this stress, Mike had developed a tick, a head twitch. He had by then started grunting as well. And the ticks would get worse in high-pressure situations, like boot camp. So Kenny offered hypnosis. He said, 
Picture your brain like a dark cloud, with lightning jumping from one cloud to the next. Now, picture the sun coming out and the lightning disappearing. Now, your neck is going to relax. And the ticks disappeared. Mike went to boot camp and on to the Marines. He did two tours overseas, and now he's in college on the GI Bill. I was really pleased with how well it worked for Mike. So Kenny kept at it. The second test subject was a kid named Eric. Eric was being offered a full scholarship to Florida A&M if he could get his SAT scores up. But he was nervous, and so he kept messing up. So Kenny put him under. Eric's score improved on the next test, and he qualified to attend Florida A&M. It seemed to work. Eric's score improved by hundreds of points. So now that Kenny had found hypnosis, he started doing it with everyone. He hypnotized teachers who wanted to pass professional exams. He hypnotized students who wanted to get better grades or be better athletes. He hypnotized parents who wanted to stop smoking. He hypnotized so many bobcats, softball and baseball and football and volleyball players, sometimes entire teams at once. And it did seem like hypnosis was giving the kids a fast track to their future selves, giving them new ideas about who they could be almost overnight. They would trade all kinds of stories, like about the basketball player who made it onto a college team, or the skate punk who was acing his history test, or a whole bunch of Northport kids suddenly passing AP tests. But there were stories of strange things, too, like the thing with the hotel and the Chinese letters. It's like, hmm. This is Renee Lyle, a parent at the school. She told me that a bunch of kids went on an ROTC trip in Orlando. Kenny was there, and one evening he gathered the kids in his hotel room and started to hypnotize them. Renee's son, Thomas, was on that trip. And when he got home, he told her... He told me that the one kid got lost, and they couldn't find him, and they were instructed not to go look for him. And it's like, that really didn't happen. But okay. It did happen. The kid's name was Kyle. Kenny had hypnotized the kids to read numbers as Chinese letters. So when Kyle went looking for his room, he didn't recognize the room number. Renee's son, Thomas, later found Kyle wandering around in the lobby, lost. And there were other things that happened on that trip. The dollar being in somebody's pocket and they didn't know how it got there. And Also, the lipstick. Passing around lipstick, and I'm like, that is disgusting. From my lips to your lips to the next person's lips, that's disgusting. It was odd. But at the time, either the parents weren't paying attention or they thought of hypnosis as part of Project Potential. They trusted Principal Kenny. He was Dr. Kenny. And they really did believe he wanted to help their kids. Until everything went wrong. I was not involved in killing any of these students. And it ended in lawyers and testimony and well-meaning George Kenny shocked that anyone would ever link hypnosis to homicide. When we come back... Hannah returns to her story. This message comes from NPR sponsor Morgan Stanley. 
Inclusion is fuel for innovation. On Access and Opportunity, an award-winning show from Morgan Stanley, they take you inside the companies at the intersection of building equity for their communities and creating business solutions in overlooked areas of the market, from closing the women's sports pay gap to leveling the playing field in the music industry. Follow Access and Opportunity wherever you listen. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome back to Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. Today, we're trying to figure out if there might be a dark side to filling kids' heads with new big ideas about who they could become. And you should know that this is where our story involves some darker content. When we left off, Hannah was telling the story of a high school in Florida whose principal hypnotized his students to help them reach their maximum potential. For some, the hypnosis really did seem magical. They were succeeding more than ever. But for others, it started to feel like a bad spell. Hannah picks up the story with one of those students. Wesley McKinley was a new kid. But as far as being the new kid goes, he was fitting in really well. He was funny and popular and, oh my God, was he cute. He had the Bieber. This is his mom, Peggy McKinley. He let his hair grow into that because Justin, um, or whatever his name was, Bieber was real, real popular at the time. I don't know how I got here. The future self that Wesley saw was a musician, a guitarist trained at the best music schools and then discovered by a promoter and turned into a rock star, which is why he let his blonde hair grow long enough that he could swoop it across his forehead just so. As a matter of fact, we had to get up at least an hour early so he could straighten the hair so much to excite. So he was really excited about it. Just look at me now. Wesley spent all his time in the music room at Northport High, playing the guitar, writing songs, and teaching other kids to play the guitar. His music teacher told him that he had a real gift. And so Wesley began to dream the biggest dream that a musician can dream. He had told us when he graduated he wanted to go to New York, which blew us away because, I mean, New York? Really? You're going to go to New York? Um, But he wanted to go to Juilliard. Wesley had never been to New York, and that vision was a stretch for him in other ways, too. Wesley loved playing his guitar, but music fundamentals, theory, not so much. Wasn't as stoked about it, because it, it was more, you know, reading and, and applying versus the actual performance of it. Wesley's teacher had already lined up an audition for him at Juilliard. But to reach this future fantasy self, Wesley would need a Hail Mary. And then one day in the fall, Wesley came back with some exciting news to tell his mom. He'd just been part of a hypnosis demonstration that Principal Kenny did in a psych class, and he thought that hypnosis could really help him with this audition. He thought he could be, he could be more focused. To prove it, Peggy says he did a demonstration for her to show her that hypnosis had given him some instant math skills. I can tell you right now, I could, and he counted threes up to a thousand, like that. Three, six, nine, and just went on. And while he was an okay student, I mean, that really was not part of his realm. Wesley seemed really into the hypnosis, but his mom didn't like the idea. Uh Uh-uh, no. 
I don't know anything about hypnosis, but what I do know is I don't like the idea that somebody can manipulate your brain to do anything. I, I think that that's a very dangerous, dangerous scenario. So we both said, no, don't do it. And we thought that it was, that was done. A few miles away lived another Northport student, Brittany Palumbo. Like Wesley, Brittany had been infected by the be-your-best-self atmosphere at the school. And she had a very clear idea of her future self. Neither of her parents had graduated from college. Her mom was a waitress. Her dad worked in construction. But Brittany set her sights higher. Here's her mom, Patty. How, how specific was her vision of her future? Very specific. She was going to go to UCF. She bought UCF sweatshirts. She had a UCF cup. I mean, she was just dead sent on UCF. UCF, the University of Central Florida. Brittany had it all mapped out. Her boyfriend was already there. They'd been together since sophomore year. And she was going to be rooming with her best friend. Oh, she was very excited. It was a big deal for her. But Brittany had never exactly been a natural scholar. Her mom had to come up with all sorts of tricks to get her to focus. As a waitress, Patty knew that the minimum wage life could be rough. So she would get Brittany to visualize a kind of future nightmare, a negative future self. Brittany, 10 years down the road, without the college degree. Well, what do you want to do, grow up and say, would you like to supersize your lunch or would you like fries with your order? The trick worked. Brittany developed ideas about herself that went way beyond what she'd seen at home. In sophomore year, Brittany started studying and getting her grades up. And by senior year, she was single-mindedly focused on her college dream. She was studying all the time, even lying to her friends to get out of parties so she could study even more. It just got to be that that was pretty much 80% of what she did. She seemed to have what I thought were her priorities in line. When it came time to apply for college, Brittany had an excellent GPA. She had joined lots of clubs. She was volunteering. But there was one nut she couldn't crack, the SAT. To get into UCF, Brittany needed to improve her SAT scores, but she couldn't. Whenever she would take the test, she would get distracted by her legs jiggling, by the clock ticking, by people sniffling and making noise. One day, she went into Kenny's office to ask for a recommendation. She mentioned her SAT distraction thing, and he said he could help her. Brittany asked her mom, Patty, and Patty said okay, as long as she could come too. And so Brittany headed to school to be hypnotized. Fine. And the deeper you go, the better you feel. On a Friday afternoon at 3.30, after most people had gone home, Brittany and Patty walked into Kenny's office. He shut the door, dimmed the lights, closed the blinds. He motioned for Brittany to sit in a big comfortable chair right in front of his desk. And he was looking at her directly, maybe a foot between them. Close your eyes and relax. This is Kenny's voice from hypnosis tapes he recorded. Taking a nice deep breath. Patty is watching. She was bent over like at a 90 degree angle, almost with her head between her knees and her arms dangling down where her uh, fingertips almost had touched the floor. Feel your heart rate slow down ever so slightly. And then I remember him telling her she was not going to hear the <coughs> ticking of the clock or people <laughs> coughing or sniffling. And he said, and I'm going to give you a subliminal message 
that any time in your life that you feel anxious, depressed, confused, that you will blink your eyes rapidly and enter a calm and relaxed state. When they got outside, Patty asked Brittany for back and neck hurt from all that slumping. She said, Mom, I wasn't in that position. And then she asked her daughter about those last words, that subliminal message Kenny had left about the calm and relaxed state. And she said he never said that. It concerned me enough that I would not allow her to drive her car. I took her keys from her. And she gave me the, "Ah." and she got in my car and came home. It was sessions much like this one that Wesley McKinley began attending behind his mother's back. Sure, his mom had said no, but there was a future self waiting for him, a self he was eager to get to. So he did it anyway. He fudged a permission slip by telling his mom it was a field trip for him, and then he made an appointment with Dr. Kenny. And it was a day after one of those sessions that the first truly disturbing thing happened at Northport High. Wesley was riding the bus home with his friend Thomas, the same kid who was on that ROTC trip with the Chinese letters. Usually on the ride home, Wesley played the jokester. There was this thing he did a lot. Here's his mom again, Peg. Wesley being six foot one, um, he would, there was a bump they would go over and he would always jump up and hit his head on on the thing just to make everybody laugh. But that day, he didn't do the head bump. He just laid with his head across the lap of one of the girls on the bus. And they knew something was up, something was wrong. When he sat up and looked out the window, Wesley started acting really bizarre. Here's Renee, Thomas's mom. He's counting parking lights in the parking lot. I don't know how. And then he was spitting them out. There's 71 parking lights in this parking lot. What? How did you know that? And... He was asking his friends on the bus to call him Tyler. Tyler? His middle name. It was a name he never used. But it turned out it was the name George Kenny used during hypnosis. It was Kenny's way of testing if Wesley was really under. If Wesley responded to Tyler, the answer was yes. Mm -hmm. And so there was Wesley, counting lights, calling himself Tyler. And then as soon as they got off the bus together, Wesley turned to his friend Thomas and said... Punch me. He kept repeating it. Punch me. Begging his friends to do it. Thomas, Josh, Ashley, punch me. Punch me in the face. Thomas, no, I'm not going to punch you. Why would I punch you? Instead, they went to Thomas's house to play video games. And while they were playing, Wesley got a text from his on-again, off-again girlfriend. She said in the text that she kissed someone. It wasn't the first time she'd said that. But this time, she also said that she didn't want Wesley to call or text her anymore. Wesley threw the remote control across the room and went home. Here's his mom, Peg. He walked in the front door. I was folding clothes, laundry, and I had the stack in my hand. And I said to him as he passed by me, he had friends, it was Friday. He had friends coming over. I said, I made you some cookies what time is Ash and everybody coming over. And he walked in his room and he dropped his book bag and he walked out the glass doors, the sliding doors to the back. Never spoke to me, which was really unusual because I was sick. And 
my Wesley would have said, you know, how are you feeling today? What's going on? He didn't say anything to me, just walked past me. And then didn't go to the chair, which he normally went to. But as I'm putting the clothes away, I saw him walk past the window. And I'm banging on the window, Wes, Wes. And he wouldn't answer me. And I called him and I said, there's something wrong. I'm calling Wesley and he's not answering me. And he said, I'll try to call him. And with that, they were at the door telling me he was dead. They were the cops. They came to the door and they told Peg that Wesley had gone to an abandoned house around the corner and killed himself. I wish Thomas would have punched him. (laughs) Who knows? Weeks after Wesley's death, the community of Northport mourned the loss of this beautiful boy who could have one day gone on to Juilliard. How could this kid have given up on his future self? The one person who seemed to have some idea was Brittany Palumbo. A few days after he died, Brittany posted a long note on his Facebook page. She wrote, I don't exactly know if suicide is the right answer to escape all your problems but I hope you are free of them now. By that point, Brittany's own dream of her future self, going to UCF, being with her boyfriend and her best friend, it was falling apart. After the hypnosis session with Dr. Kenny, Brittany's SAT score barely budged. It increased, but not nearly enough to get her into UCF. Her best friend, the one she was supposed to room with, they'd had an argument and they weren't speaking. And her boyfriend, he'd broken up with her. In fact, he said he didn't want to talk to her anymore. He told her that he needed a real break. Sad. Sad. This is her mom, Patty, again. Patty knew that her daughter was in bad shape, so she was keeping a very close eye on her. She never wanted anybody to see her like that, so she hid that even from us. But I heard her cry. Sometimes, at night, I'd listen outside of her door. On May 3rd, 2011, Patty and Brittany officially gave up on her original dream for her future self. There would be no UCF. Instead, she was going to Valencia. It was a community college, so it wasn't like an application process that was like when we tried to get into UCF. It was just fill out the paperwork and give him a credit card. And and she said, now we're done. And I said, now we're done. And she said, okay, well, Valencia it is. The next day, when Brittany came home from school, she asked her mom for a favor. Said she was low on gas, and could she drive my car to go down here to CVS and pick up some eyeliner? And I said, okay. I gave her my car keys. She left. She came back. When she came back, she put a little brown bag on the counter that had an eyeliner. She said she was going in to lay down and take a nap. And at 6 o'clock, my husband and I went to go get her, or I went to go knock on her door, and it was locked. And we kept banging on the door, and she didn't answer. So then we went in through her bedroom window through the pool. 
she had taken her own life. In 10 years, I'm hoping to be, I'm, ho I'm hoping. Professionally playing oboe. Professional volleyball player. Professional soccer player. In 10 years, I want to be. I want to be. I want to be a millionaire. There's no more hypnosis at Northport High School. Principal George Kenny resigned, moved away, and he isn't working in education anymore. A year after the suicides, family members of the children sued the school for negligence. The case settled out of court, so it was never decided whether hypnosis contributed to those deaths. To the families of the kids who died, Dr. Kenny is a villain, a guy peddling snake oil, a false prophet. But a lot of people in Northport still regard him as a hero. The one guy who was trying to do everything he possibly could to help their kids reach their dreams when other people just wouldn't bother. Be anything. Pediatrician. Do anything. Therapist. Forensic scientist. Finish with my PhD. Pediatric surgeon. In America, we tell people to dream big, that they can be anything they want to be, regardless of who they are now. We say this to rich kids, and we say it to poor kids, brown, black, and white. Kids who may have no models or concepts in their heads for how to become those things. One of the boys looked at me and said, what am I hoping to be like? And I said, yeah. And he said to me, well, I, I would hope to be the first man on the sun. Daphna Oyserman is a psychology professor at the University of Southern California. She's interviewed hundreds of adolescents about their imagined future selves. This particular kid, the sun traveler, he was probably somewhere between 13 and 15. And this question really captured his imagination. Except that he was in juvie when he told her that. In his case, he would be lucky if he graduated from high school. So when she was talking to him, what went through Daphne's head is basically what goes through all of her heads when we encounter a future self that seems so out of reach. What is the right thing to tell this kid? Do we have a duty to elevate kids' aspirations? Do we have a duty to sober kids up and, you know, tell them what's really realistic? On the one hand, if you are realistic, then aren't you dimming a light, making this kid's days duller and his dreams seem ridiculous, telling him, yeah, in America, everyone has a right to dream. Everyone except you. But on the other hand, if you encourage him, dream big, Reach for that PhD. Try on the astronaut suit. Aren't you just being willfully blind to a hard reality that the American dream is nearly impossible to achieve? This is the dilemma Dr. Kenny faced. And according to Daphna Oyserman, at least, he made a classic error, pinning the kids to such a specific and singular version of their future self that anything else seemed like failure. It set kids up to feel really badly about themselves Instead of setting students up to interpret difficulties along the way, fears along the way as part of the process, you've reframed it as a flaw in themselves and make kids feel that the, whatever failures are permanent, that one thing was my essence. So if I can't have that, there is no meaning. The thing about introducing new concepts to kids, to anyone, even to yourself, it's noble but also dangerous work. Eventually, new concepts could expand your horizons, make your life richer and fuller. 
But one of the things we heard over and over again as we learned about concepts is that in the short term, it's stressful. And it can put you at odds with your family, your world, and your old self. So do it carefully, slowly, and with open eyes about how much meticulous work is required. There are no shortcuts, no magic keys that can unlock your amazing new future self. Because maybe there just isn't one single future self. It's more like a dance you have to do with lots of future selves. And you can't hold on to anyone too tightly. And you might even consider the idea that you don't need any future self. The 10 years from now, you could be more or less who you are, just a little older, and that's fine. In 10 years. In 10 years. In 10 years. In 10 years, I'll be happy, hopefully. In 10 years, I'll be fabulous. Patty, Brittany's mom, she worries that this is what she got wrong. What rolls around over and over in her head is, did she push Brittany too hard? Did she make Brittany feel like a failure if she didn't get into UCF? If she didn't live out that college dream? It sounds to me like the one of the lessons you're drawing here is there is some danger in, in, in dreaming that high. Yes. Yes. See, Patty has another child, a son who easily sailed through school. He was on the fast track to the kind of professional life Patty had always imagined for her kids. When Brittany died, he was a freshman in college and he was about to take his finals. He missed them. The school gave him a second chance and then a third. But he couldn't do it. He called up his mom and said... And he just said, Mom, you know, I know this is going to be hard. I know it's going to be something you don't want to hear. He was dropping out. He kept assuring me, I will go back. I will go back. And all I kept thinking was, that's exactly what I said to my mother after the first year when I quit, you know? She could understand, but she couldn't believe it. As a waitress, Patty worked nights, weekends, holidays, and she did not want that kind of life for her son. There was no doubt in my mind that he would have completed college, that that was where he wanted to be, not just what I wanted for him. That was, that was him. But... His concentration level, he said, was the, was the worst. He said, sit in a quiet room by yourself, Mom, and try to think about something other than... And you can't. He took a job at a mall. He's been there for five years and worked his way up to area manager. The other day, he called his mom, and he asked her, was she proud of him? So even now, I think he's doing what he's doing to show us that even though he didn't go to college that even though he didn't do everything the way that we had planned, that he's done okay for himself. But he wants, he wants that, that feeling that we are proud of him. Wants that feeling because it's really hard to shake the sense that you're a failure if you don't become that one future self that you set out to be. When you tell him, like, there's no shame in being, there's no shame in this, there's no shame in that, do you believe that in your heart? I want to say yes, but honestly, I don't know. Do you still tell Ryan you can be anything you want to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I believe you can. Do you think that makes him feel like a disappointment? (sighs) Wow, now that you say it like that. Because am I not accepting him for what he is then? If I'm telling him to... Oh, Hannah, I'll tell you this, being a mom... 
I mean, for a job for me, is the most important job that there is, is raising a child and being a mother. I certainly wish there was more of a handbook. A handbook that would tell you exactly which proportions of self-acceptance plus drive would get you where you want to go, safely. But there isn't. Invisibilia's Hannah Rosen. And a word now about our other podcast this week. In it, we tell two stories which look in a different way at our ideas about ourselves and how they affect our life. Our own Lulu Miller is back with a story about a man who self-identifies as a square. I'm a professor in a business school. And the other story is about a woman who's a dreamer. Right. <laughs> they both were chugging along in their 30s, knowing exactly who they were. And then? And then one day. One day. He was taking a train down the northwest coast. She woke from a deep, deep sleep and heard? A very different side of themselves suddenly emerged. <laughs> like, what? What is that? Lord birthday. Yeah, that's it. How these two people responded to these new selves? could not have been more different. You can listen to this episode now. It's in your feed called True You. Go enjoy. Now, if you haven't heard the earlier episodes in our concept album, you can go back. There is a bear fairy tale, a musical of umpires, and the discovery of a new emotion. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please write us a review. We will be forever grateful. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Hannah Rosen. Our senior editor is Ann Gudenkoff. Our executive producer is Jeff Rogers. Invisibilia is produced by Megan Kane, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our showrunner is Liana Simons. We had help from Lulu Miller, Micaela Rodriguez, Anastasia Kupstis, Mark Mehmet, Michael Ratner, Nancy Shute, Meredith Rizzo, John Hamilton, Maya Dugmasova, and Vivian Fairbank. Our technical director is Andy Huther, and our vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. Special thanks to... Ellen Gamberg for schooling us on hypnosis and Aesop Rock. For naming themselves after a Greek storyteller and for letting us use the classic that you are bobbing your head to right now. No regrets. Also to Ryan Deaver for his guitar and for trying to make the world a better place. And to the band Peels for letting us use their song Believers from the album Walking Field. And to Xander Clinthorne for his song In a Plane Above the Clouds. And now for our moment of nonsense. Okay. <clears throat> Bieber music. Ugh. That's Invisibilia. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Imagine a house where every room follows a different architect's plan. 
Doorways don't connect. Staircases lead nowhere. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our complicated system for treating psychosis, one that loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. We'll ask how it got so bad and how it can get better. Listen to Lost Patients from KOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.